Uh, well, thank you for coming. It is with really great pleasure that we welcome our guest speaker today, Raya Bhattari. Um, so Raya is an entrepreneur, author, futurist, and public speaker. She's the founder and CEO of Academy, which is a company that prepares learners, educators, and industry experts um, to uh, be prepared for the exponentially changing future. She's one of the world's leading experts in alternative models of education, the future of work, and exponential innovation. She was also featured by the BBC as one of the 100 most influential and inspirational women globally. So without further ado, I will hand over to the really incredible Raya, um, who will tell you more about Academy and her journey. Um, we'll have some time for, uh, for questions at the end, so please do hold on to those. Um, over to you, Raya. Thank you, Zara, for that lovely introduction. Um, hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be talking to you all today and um, basically share a bit about my journey and some of the lessons I've learned uh, from the entrepreneurial experience that I think would be useful uh, for you guys. So uh, like Zara, I grew up in Dubai, the UAE, uh, which is where I am right now. And um, I was really lucky to have a lot of enriching entrepreneurial experiences in high school. Uh, so I was part of the founding team um, of the Dubai Science Festival. Uh, we were the first science festival here in Dubai. And the goal was to promote sciences through the arts and to make science uh, accessible to even the layperson. Uh, we grew to have 10,000 uh, visitors in our first year and lots of amazing support from like government entities in the region. So it was a pretty cool experience to have as a high school student. Um, around the same time, I was launching a couple of other uh, initiatives and um, basically, you know, building those entrepreneurial uh, kind of experiences. Uh, I then went on to study neuroscience at Boston University, uh, so, but I also did continue to work on some social impact uh, organizations uh, in Boston and in the United States. And um, like many of you, I realized that uh, studying something and working in the industry are two very different things. So I loved learning about neuroscience, but the moment I worked in the lab, I realized it's not for me. <laughs> and so um, very quickly, I realized I do not wanna be a scientist, even though I have a lot of respect uh, for people who are. Uh, but there was another realization that came for me um, during that time. And that was this realization about how broken our education uh, system is. So um, at university, I was kind of overwhelmed by the whole system, by the meaningless memorization. I felt like a lot of my peers and I were having, you know, declining mental health issues, uh, you know, lack of, there was lack of emphasis on the right skills that I feel like I needed to have. There was a lack of emphasis on experiential learning, learning by doing, which is how I prefer to learn. Um, and so it became kind of started piling up on each other. Uh, I started to love learning in my own way, but I hated school. I hated going to lecture halls. I hated memorizing things for an exam at the end. I would very much rather um, work on a project or solution and actually do something in the real world. And I felt like many of my peers uh, felt the same. And um, around the same time, I, I was at a conference in Princeton um, when Luke Nozick, who's one of the founders of PayPal, pointed out that uh, if you're gonna launch a business, you should, Think about or um, you know identify a problem that really pisses you off, and then build a business around it. And there's no point going down this entrepreneurial journey just to start a business or just to be a start, just to be a startup founder, uh, just to be a CEO. Uh, but rather, it's much more worthwhile to do it if you find a problem that really pisses you off. 
And one of the lessons I learned there is that not all problems were equally important for me. You know, I worked on a lot of different challenges in the world and, you know, scientific literacy. I, I worked on a startup uh, that was uh, making, that was closing the gender wage gap. Um, and so there was lots of different issues in the world that I could identify. But this one specifically around education was my issue, was something that really went to the core for me. Um, so that was the origins of Academy. Um, and what we're doing right now is we're teaching students future literacies that are often not covered in traditional schools, uh, but we're also now working on building a full-time alternative high school model. Uh, but I'm not gonna talk too much about Academy. I actually wanna talk about a few of the lessons that I've learned um, along the journey. Now, at this point in time, I would love to hear from you. So I know you're all at different stages and I'm sure you've already realized that you're gonna have a lot of challenges, uh, a lot of fires to put off, a lot of different difficulties throughout this experience. So take a moment to reflect on what do you think is going to be the biggest barrier, um, whether it's an internal barrier that you're having or uh, a challenge that you're facing, what do you think will be the most difficult aspect of this experience for you? thing as well that we've seen a lot is uh, particularly for university students is being able to work on something um, before it's making any profit and always having that that dilemma between should I be working on a startup should I get a job you know the, yeah. this, uh, absolutely absolutely and for me as well I, I started my startup in my last year of university so I can really relate to that um, and I totally get it so hopefully I can speak to that a bit more Okay, so I see a few, a few patterns here. Um, so, okay, let's start with one of these that I'm seeing right now, which is, you know, there's a quote that only 5% of startups succeed. People, some people say 3% of startups succeed. Um, so one of the first uh, things that I've learned, and I wish I did more of this early on, it took me a while to get a hang of this, is to take somewhat of a scientific approach to the entrepreneurial journey. So for those of you who, do, who have done scientific research, you know it's all about um, identifying a hypothesis and then actually in a very controlled way, testing the hypothesis to see it's true. And so for those of you who are running early stage startups, you have a hypothesis, you have something that you need to validate. Um, and so your solution that you're thinking about right now may or may not be the right fit for the problem that you've identified. And so there is this process in the entrepreneurial world known as the lean startup process. It's all about building a very kind of practical, tangible, minimum viable product. So it's a version of your product that is very easily testable, um, that you take to market very quickly and you test and gather feedback on before fundraising, before investing a lot of time and energy into the big thing. So for example, when we first launched our minimum viable product was literally just a WordPress website. We downloaded this learning management system plugin um, and built our own online courses completely off the shelf um, and tested it in that way with a group of students. It cost us very little. Um, it was a minimal amount of time, but it also allowed us to test this hypothesis of will people subscribe into an online platform um, that does this. That kind of prototyping will look very different for different companies, uh, but taking that scientific approach is really important. Um, so there's a serial entrepreneur named Peter Diamandis, whose books I totally recommend. And you know what he says is that the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest market opportunities. So if you have a challenge, you have a problem that people are willing to pay for a solution for. 
Um, it's really important to keep at the challenge, but don't get too committed to the solution. Um, for example, you know, I've dedicated my life to fixing the education system, but that can come in different shapes and forms. It could be through extracurricular programs. It could be through online courses. It could be through teacher training. Uh, it could be through policy. It could be through um, building full-time schools or building an online school, an in-person school. And so for you as well, whatever the problem may be, there's lots of different solutions and you're going to have to keep pivoting until you find the right one. So kind of keeping that in mind is really important. And I believe if you're able to do that, it really reduces the whole um, failure rate. Um, I think, you know, the lean startup process came about as a reaction to the fact that most startups were failing. And so Eric Rice, the guy that created it, his argument was if you took the scientific approach and did rapid prototyping and iterations, you dramatically reduce your chances um, of failure. Um, a few other uh, challenges that I'm seeing here um, involve, you know, finding the right people, building a community around you as someone voiced just now. And I think those are real challenges, but if you get them right, it's, it's so, such a powerful thing. Um, and that brings me to the next lesson I've learned, which is that the network you have is everything. Um, I know networking can be framed as a superficial thing that you do. Uh, uh, really, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, the way I like to see it, it's all about finding people whose visions and missions and interests align with yours and just connecting with them. Um, and so these might be other entrepreneurs who are working on the same challenge and it might be potential customers, it might be advisors, partner organizations, um, and some, and as you already probably know, you know, your university professors are some of the best people to go to. Uh, they often have a lot of industry connections. Um, but even in a lot of um, university campuses, there's lots of conferences that happen in the city that you're in. There are lots of conferences. Right now, everything's moved online, but it's all about actively building connections. And I'm a huge fan of just building those connections with no agenda. And somewhere down the line, something will happen. Some value will be created. Um, you know, we've had lots of new customers or partners, uh, awards, all of these things that have come by just because I happened to meet someone in passing at a conference or I connected with someone on LinkedIn. Um, so kind of having an active networking strategy, even if it isn't with a specific agenda in mind is really important. Then further down the line later, you might need something and you happen to know someone um, that has it. One thing that I wish that I did from the beginning was have a network database. So this is like an Excel sheet um, of names, uh, roles, companies, industry, and email. Because uh, it's gotten out of hand now where I have some contacts on LinkedIn, some on email, some on Facebook. And I really wish from the beginning I had a habit of consolidating it all in one place. And so that's something I urge you to do. Now, one of the other things that really helps with networking is thought leadership. I'm not sure if that word means anything to you, but it's essentially the process of sharing your ideas with the world. So um, as you're starting a, a startup, a company, you're developing a lot of expertise in a given area, whether it's renewable energy or whether it is um, a, you know, around education, you are learning so much just by working on this problem. And you have lots of new ideas that you've come across, whether it's books or other thinkers that you can share with the rest of the world. And one of the things I found to be really powerful is establishing yourself as an expert. 
So you don't have to wait for someone to give you permission and say, wow, you've invented this technology and now you're an expert in this area. You can start to establish yourself as that expert. So write articles on Medium about your opinion on that industry. Um, submit yourself as a speaker for conferences. Give TEDx talks. You know, these are all the different ways you can be a thought leader. And um, I really think it's one of the most powerful ways to network because the more you put your ideas out there, someone will come across that article or that YouTube video and think, wow, this is really cool. I want to reach out to this person or wow, I, I, this really resonates with me. I'm really interested in this problem. I want to talk more to her about this. So um, I've actually found this to be a really nice way of pulling people to you rather than going out and reaching out to people. Um, I've had potential investors, potential customers, partners, team members reach out um, to me and the rest of the team because they heard us speak at a conference or because they read one of our articles. So it's a really powerful way of networking. Um, one of the things that I've, I've realized, I think quite recently is um, how much contradictory advice there are out there <laughs> when it comes to running a startup. Um, many of you will end up putting together advisory boards, hopefully, um, you know, you'll have mentors, you'll participate in accelerator programs, um, you'll do lots of, you put yourself in position, where, positions where people are telling you, you know, I think this is how you should do things or they're giving you feedback. Um, and more often than not, it's contradictory. And more often than not, that's because there isn't one way of doing this. Um, I really don't believe that just because I got to the point that I am at, through a certain path that that necessarily immediately applies to everyone in the Zoom call or everyone in the world. I think there's so many different ways of doing this. Um, and especially if you're doing something pioneering, if you're doing something hasn't been done before in terms of a novel technology or a novel business model, there's no playbook for it. So you're kind of inventing it as you, as you go along the way. Um, but one of the questions I always ask myself if someone is giving me advice and expertise uh, it's a couple of questions, but first I ask myself, has this person taken the time to really understand my business? Um, a lot of people love to straight jump into advice, but really a good mentor or advisor will get to know you first. They'll ask you a lot of questions. They'll try to understand your thinking. They'll ask you things like, have you tried this before, uh, before giving you advice? So if they haven't done that, I would immediately be kind of wary in that they don't have all the information. How can they possibly tell you um, or what the best path forward is? Uh, the second question I ask myself is, is this their area of expertise, right? They might be an expert at fundraising, but have no idea how to build a school. Um, they might be an expert in education, but don't have the marketing skills, right? So if they're giving you advice on a specific domain, are they an expert in that domain or do they have expertise in that domain? Um, next is, you know, do they understand the mission? Do they get it? I think that's so important. Um, criticism from people who get the mission and want to see the mission be fulfilled are really valued because you know it's coming um, from a good place. Um, so those are just some of the questions to ask yourself before um, bringing on advisors and before taking feedback um, into account. Uh, the final uh, kind of key lesson I'll share before going into questions, it's really important not to attach your ego and your happiness to your company. It's so hard because in some sense, that sense of attachment is what makes you successful as an entrepreneur. 
it's because you're so committed to it, you've kind of lost yourself into it, uh, that you think about it day and night and make it happen. But it's really important to feel a sense of detachment where, you know, even if you're having a horrible day in terms of your startup, you're still able to kind of stay focused with your loved ones, right? Like even if um, you're having one of those dips um, in your profit and loss margins that you can still, um, you know, uh, take a stoic approach to it. I think this is quite um, contradictory to some of the motivational speakers out there, like people like Tony Robbins, who will tell you that you are in control of your future. And if you, if you think of it, it will happen. If you think positively, it will all fall into place. I really don't buy into any of that bullshit. I, I think that, you know, if you, you can do your best and you should strive to change the world, but also be at peace with the fact that you might fail because there are variables in the universe that are beyond your control, that are beyond my control. And you might just get unlucky, right? And that's okay. I, I find that the entrepreneurial experience is much more fulfilling and exciting when I accept that, at least for me, right? When I realize it's okay, right? I'm, I'm gonna do my best and my team is gonna do their best, but at the end of the day, something horrible might happen and I might just have to pivot and try something else. So it's just something to keep um, in mind. Okay, so one of the first things I wanted to address was time management and balancing things with university. Um, I don't know if I have advice here, but I can share my experience and what, how I tackled it. So my last year of university, I started to ID at Academy and started to work on it. And for me, I felt like that was my purpose, that, that it was my calling. I had finally found it and that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And considering that I felt that way, I was really just scraping through my academics. I figured out the way to pass all my classes with least amounts of effort so that I had time to work on my company. Now, I'm not advising you to do that. That's something that you need to figure out for yourself is if this is your calling in life, if this is your purpose, then screw your grades. I promise you they don't matter. Um, in fact, I think in the last four or five years since I've graduated, I've been asked for my diploma or my university diploma once. Um, as an entrepreneur, especially if you're a startup founder, no one cares about your GPA, no one cares about your grades. Um, so it's really not one of those things investors look at. So if you do decide that this is what you want to do, whether it's running your own startup or working for another startup, um, really academics are not the most important thing. Uh, but that depends on whether that is important uh, to you to begin with. One of the questions that's related to that is, at what stage of the journey should one leave their job to focus on the startup full time? Can abandoning your current profession too early bring more harm than good? Um, again, this depends on a number of factors. Uh, the most obvious one is how much financial security you have. So it can take anywhere between um, six months to a year to successfully fundraise after you have a prototype and after you've already shown early traction from customers. So keeping that timeline in mind, uh, do you have six months to 12, six to 12 months of run rates and financial stability? Um, I know some people will start part-time on their startup. They'll have a job that has relatively good work-life balance and spend after hours working on the startup. And then when they're ready to fundraise, they'll kind of pivot out of it and go into their startup. That makes perfect sense. Um, I also know many people who 
go back to their families and say, hey, I'm launching this business. Can I move back home for a few months and live with you guys while you feed me and pay my rent so that I can focus just on this business? So there's lots of ways of doing it. I think that really depends on you. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is it's really difficult to grow very quickly on your business if there isn't at least one full-time team member. So I'm personally a bigger fan of moving them back with your parents into the basement and doing it full-time uh, because things can really um, fizzle out when you have a full-time job. And often what tends to happen is you end up getting very comfortable in the safety net of a salary and of the benefits that it becomes much harder to leave and work on um, your company. So it's another thing to keep in mind. So Charlotte's asking any recommendations on how to keep momentum and growth after launching. So distribution channels are the different channels through which people hear about your product or solution. And one of the distribution channels might be partners. Another one might be universities. Um, others might be social media. So if you have found a channel that works really well, um, whatever that channel that you just spoke about may be, then definitely you want to try to recreate it. That's uh, like a gold line that you found. But at the same time, you want to expand and try new things and keep conducting those experiments. Um, I would also, whenever you do succeed in um, landing a new partner or growing to X amount of users, try to do press and thought leadership throughout. So um, trying to get, even if it's in the local newspaper, an announcement that there's this, this new app in town that's just been adopted by this university. That in return kind of creates that snowballing effect where even more people will hear about it as a result of this outcome. Um, yes, I hope, I hope that was helpful. Um, but on that note, there's a nice question here from Shahbaz that says, does your product have to be innovative to be successful? Um, not necessarily. So I, I think Dubai is an excellent example of this. They're masters at replicating things that have already been done. And a lot of startups here operate under the same philosophy. So the biggest unicorns we've had, you know, are people that have replicated things that have been proven on the West, in, in the West. So Uber here, there's a cream, it's a, it's a equivalent of Uber, and they just got acquired by Uber for by several billion, but they didn't really innovate, right? They just took something that works and catered it to the market. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be innovative to be successful. Uh, but personally, I, I don't think, uh, I don't find it worth the effort to do something that's already been done. It's so much work um, to start your own company, to take that risk. If there's another startup already doing it, go offer to work for them, join their founding team. And that's, I think, an awesome move. Um, I, I would totally advocate for doing that. Um, but I definitely don't think your product or service has to have proprietary technology to be successful. Um, that doesn't mean you have to invent a new tech, a new type of AI or a new type of solution. I know those are buzzwords that people like to hear, but you could use existing technology in a way that hasn't been used before. You can innovate the marketing side of things. You can innovate the business model. You can innovate the content that goes over that technology, right? So for those of you who are thinking across tech startups, that's great. But if you feel like tech isn't your strong edge, it wasn't my strong edge. Um, remember that you have other ways um, of innovating beyond technology. Now, you only really need to patent something if it's a new kind of technological invention. I mean, look, not all ideas are patentable. That's the main thing I want to keep in mind, right? So 
depending on what your idea is, it may or may not be patentable, but it also doesn't have to be patentable for it to be a startup. Um, so something to keep in mind. If you are inventing a new kind of process, a new kind of tech, a new kind of device, then definitely reach out to a patent lawyer ASAP and get the IP registered. That's really important. Um, the other level to it is you can still copyright things that uh, aren't patentable. So let's say it's a specific, um, like for us, that's our curriculum, right? So the, the slides, the frameworks are... Um, curriculum learning standards, those are copyrightable that you can copyright them, but you can't patent them. Um, you definitely want to try to trademark your logo and your company name. A, a part of that involves making sure you get the domains, the dot coms for whatever your name is called as soon as you can. One of the rookie mistakes uh, is searching for the domain, bookmarking it and not buying it. Uh, immediately because platforms like GoDaddy keep track of that and then they buy your domain and then they up the cost of the domain. So just something random that I experienced is as soon as you have the name, buy it immediately. Don't think, just buy. Um, and so, yeah, so the things you need to think about is IP, whether you can patent stuff, whether you can copyright stuff and then trademarking your name um, and your company. Um, and that's pretty much it. I, I think that's really the main things to think about. Um, in terms of like copywriting and patenting. Even if you don't trademark, um, I would incorporate immediately because then you can officially assign all the IP you're creating to an entity. You can say everything I've created, the app, it now falls under the umbrella of this entity. And in, I don't know, again, what it's like in the UK, but I know like in the US, it was just a few hundred dollars to incorporate, which is not bad compared to here in the UAE. And that's another thing to keep in mind is it's becoming increasingly easy to incorporate in other parts of the world. Um, and this is really important because you might be doing something that might not, might be very heavily regulated in your country, or it might be really expensive to incorporate in the country that you're living in. But there are platforms um, like um, Jumpstart, which I will post here, that let anyone incorporate a company in the US for starting a few hundred dollars and you can be anywhere in the world. And they even sort out your online bank account for you. Um, so that's, you know, something to keep uh, in mind. Now, whether or not you do an LLC or a cor corporation, I think most startups do corporations. Um, but if you have co-founders, and this is so important, if you have co-founders, it's so important that you establish the founder rights, the shareholding pattern, um, the, the rights and responsibilities of all the co-founders from the very beginning. It's, it's so sad and so tragic how many startups fail because of founder issues and how many of those founder issues could be could have been mitigated early on if you had the right terms and conditions in place. So thinking about, you know, is there a hierarchy? Is, does one of the co-founders have more power than the others? Does everyone have voting rights or do some people have voting rights? Um, if one of the founders wanted to dissolve the company one day, did they have the power to do that? Or is that something unanimously need to be agreed on? Uh, things like bank accounts, you know, do all of the co-founders have access to bank accounts or, do, uh, or to um, moving money in out of the company account or do some founders have? So really thinking about that and thinking about all of the worst case scenarios, imagine no matter how close you are to your co-founders, imagine they turned out to be really dishonest or imagine they turned out to steal all the IP. So actually imagine all of these worst case scenarios and embed, protect yourself against it, or protect the company against it 
in the shareholders agreements and in the founders agreements. So I think that is really important to do at least before you announce anything to the world. Um, and it usually doesn't cost much um, in UK and in the US, so it shouldn't be a barrier. What people often tell me as well is investors, especially with early stage companies, they don't invest in the company. They don't invest in the idea, they invest in the team because ideas can change. The company can rebrand, the company may change its name. It might pivot to something else, but it's that team that they're investing in. Um, a couple of things I would suggest. One, because you, most of you, all of you are university students, and there are certain biases towards young founders, which is great. That works in your favor. But there are also biases against young founders. Um, we're often perceived as less experienced. You know, there is a bigger risk factor to the university students starting a company. And that's understandable. Um, you know, most of us are still figuring out who we are, uh, which is why I think trying to find team members who are older and more experienced in the industry is a huge plus. Um, so this might, these might be individuals that are in their thirties and forties and are already leading in the space. Um, they maybe are working, have worked on other startups before, or it could be that in the industry that you're operating out of, they're really well-known thought leaders and experts. Now they, you might, they might be in a position to join your core team. They might be excited about it. Um, or you might have them as advisors and that still gives you a lot more credibility as a team. Right, so having really experienced uh, industry leaders on your advisory board or on your core team is a huge win. And I urge you to try to make that happen um, in whatever shape or form. Uh, a couple of other things to think about. Um, this goes back to the legal stuff. One of the things I wish we did early on is have everyone on vesting agreements, uh, including myself. So um, I don't know if you guys know what vesting agreements are, but essentially it means your equity in the company vests over a period of time or based on certain milestones. So for the core founding team, let's say if we, you know, if Finn, you and I split the company 50-50, we both don't get 50-50 from the beginning, it vests over time. That means if two years from now you decided, nah, I don't want to do this anymore, you don't own 50% of the company that you're holding hostage. You own 10% of it because the rest of it hasn't invested. I think that that really, really um, helps um, kind of reduce the uncertainty with team members because not all the team members you're with right now will choose to be with you five years from now. But you want to make sure their equity can be released back into the company if they leave early or if they haven't done met certain milestones. Um, and the same applies for, um, let's say, not core team members. So you might choose to bring on a developer and say to them, I'll give you 4% of the company in return for building the platform. Um, even that should be vested. So every two months, 1% of the it gets vested or it only gets vested after they finish their development objectives. So that's one of the best ways, vesting is one of the best ways to make sure that it's tagged to outcome and tagged to time. And uh, finally, I think another, the most important thing with team, team members is making sure um, ways of working is aligned. So experiment with it first, don't commit to anything. Take three months and six months working with them informally. Um, uh, I, you know, people are more than willing to do that. And you can be open about it. You can be like, let's just, just try this out. You know, I'd love to have you as a CTO, but let's try it out for a few months, see how you feel, see how I feel. And then maybe let's explore a vesting agreement um, to have you be a shareholder into the company. I think that's really important because um, sometimes people seem amazing at first impression, but then 
you get to working with them and you realize it's not a good, it's not a compatible working relationship. And a part of that testing period also involves making sure they're aligned with the vision and mission. So for those of you who are solving a problem and are really committed to that problem, you want to make sure your team is also equally committed to that problem. Um, and they're not doing it for the glory. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they want to solve this problem just like you want to solve this problem. That way, a lot of decision making amongst the team becomes much easier when you're aligned in that way. So Eleanor says, do you have any book recommendations which have helped shape your entrepreneurial approach uh, to business people, the world in general? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm going to type these in the chat as I say them. So one of them is Exponential Organizations. It's a book by um, Salim Ismail and a few others, but it's all about the new business models that are like hundreds of times more scalable, more exponential, more impactful than traditional linear businesses. Um, we actually used exponential organizations framework um, in thinking about our school model. Um, it's a great book and it's not just great for startups. I think it's great for those of you who are interested in business and consulting and uh, that space as well. I really like Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Um, he essentially shares all the research that we have to show that people don't buy what you do or how you do it. They first buy why you do it. So for mission-driven companies, it's a great book. It's also um, a great philosophy on marketing in general. And it's all about meaningful marketing, mission-oriented marketing, whatnot. Uh, Bold by Peter Diamandis, who I mentioned earlier. He has a number of books that are excellent. This one has great advice on crowdfunding and crowd investing as well. It's all about how you can leverage existing technologies and platforms to build uh, a startup globally. Um, and his whole case is about uh, making a new kind of billionaire, which is a person that impacts the lives of a billion people rather than um, someone who just makes a billion uh, dollars. So um, yeah, I think that and the last one I, I'll recommend here is The Lean Startup Itself. It's a book by Eric Reese or Eric Rice, I'm not sure how to say his last name, um, but it definitely helped us, helped me at least rethink the MVP, the rapid prototyping. He goes into a lot of detailed case studies and examples, which could be really useful um, as well. Hi, um, I'm just wondering, how did you know when you were ready to jump from uh, beta to your full launch? Because that's something we're definitely kind of scared of is doing a premature launch and then kind of losing a lot of your uh, customers. Yeah, I, so there's one thing I, um, I, you know, that I think it's a saying that you hear often is that if you're not embarrassed by your, the early version of your product, you've waited too long to go into market. So it's very normal to launch something that is not the vision that you have in terms of the product and the solution, but doing it in a way that allows you to get feedback. Now, one thing I never compromise on personally when I'm launching is the branding and the marketing. Um, my team and I are suckers for good design, for well-formatted slides, for you know, no typos on the website. So when it comes to the branding and marketing, we really put in a lot of effort to make sure that is perfect before launching anything new. Um, and I find that brand and marketing, again, can build a lot of credibility for a new company run by a young founder. It can really kind of elevate um, how people perceive you when you're selling to them. So that I don't compromise on, but the product itself, again, it varies from situation to situation, but it's okay to launch with something that is functional, 
maybe not exactly what you intended as long as it fulfills the purpose. Now, it also depends on what launch means. There are different kinds of launches, right? You can do a soft launch where you target a very small community of people, maybe just your university, um, and you get some early feedback and early users. And then hard launches are much more big scale where you target the world and you do a lot of social media campaigns and you're doing multiple different channels at the same time. So I wouldn't recommend a hard launch if you don't feel like your product has positive feedback and validation. But for soft launches, I, I think whenever you have something functional, it's okay to do a small soft launch. In fact, I recommend doing it as soon as possible so that you can get that data and pivot if needed or get validated sooner rather than later. Now, uh, with pricing, there's obviously a couple of things you want to take into account. Um, one, if there are benchmarks in the market. So if you have competitors or uh, companies in parallel kind of spaces in the industry, looking at their pricing, because that gives you an indication of what people are usually willing to pay for a solution like yours. Um, as second thing to think about is how much per user it costs you to deliver uh, your product or it will cost you in the future. So if it costs uh, $25 per user to offer something, you obviously want to account for a margin. So you want to charge more than that. It's business 101. Um, and then also thinking about things like perception of the product. Sometimes if something is priced too low or too cheap, people tend to negatively perceive it as a cheap product. Whereas sometimes if it's priced high, paradoxically that lands you more customers because they perceive it as a more elite um, prestigious kind of product. So depending on who your target audience is, if you're ever targeting big players and targeting kind of an elitist a group within any industry, um, higher pricing actually might work in your favor. Yeah, so I'm sure we could uh, ask you so many more questions, but unfortunately we do have to wrap up somewhere. Um, as we do wrap up, I have uh, a final couple of questions. So um, yeah. firstly, at what point did you, did you realize like how you would monetize Academy and was that part of your vision when you first thought of, like actually I guess the problem came first when you were contemplating the, the problem with the education system. Um, and then my second half of the question is that, is there anything that you did that uh, you would definitely do differently if you could go back? Yeah. Uh, so monetization, I think it's an ongoing process. We've, we've generated quite a bit of revenue, I'd say, and we're, we're very lucky in that we're actually running on sustainable revenue right now. We don't need to fundraise, uh, but we're fundraising in order to uh, launch our full-time model, uh, which is a great position to be in. Um, in education, I felt we felt like there wasn't one way to monetize, really, which is why we have um, different channels. And it definitely wasn't something we thought about early on we kind of seized opportunities as they came up. So for example, um, I happened to link with someone from the Alpha Team Education Foundation and they have multiple schools. Um, and so we kind of, and they were interested in learning more about our program. So we almost customized something for them in terms of the pricing and the monetization. So sometimes these random opportunities for monetizing your product come up. Like for example, we weren't planning on licensing our curriculum, but we had a big education provider reach out to us and ask us. So we actually went back to a drawing, drawing board and thought about how we could come up with a licensing model for our curriculum. So it was pretty haphazard in that sense. Um, we kind of went with the flow and opportunities popped up. Now, what are some things I would do differently? Um, I, I definitely think we could have done the, the rapid prototyping even more 
Like it took us a year initially to go from ideation, almost a year to go from ideation to pilots. I think that should have been done in two to three months. So I do think money was wasted in places where if we had tested it even sooner within a tighter window, we would have pre prevented certain features from being built because we knew people wouldn't use those features, for example. Um, definitely um, vested equity. I, I, all the team members, like including the founder and the CEO, like go on vested equity. It's just, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Um, it's one of those safety measures that I think prevents future um, founder issues. Um, yes, I think those th two things would be my top two things that uh, I, would, or I would have done differently. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, really incredibly insightful and you've given some amazing advice and I'm sure everyone's gained a wealth of useful knowledge to apply to the startups they'll be building over the next few weeks. Um, could you tell everyone where they can find you on social media and we learn more about Academy? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, uh, and Academy's website. It's at Academy and all the social media handles. Um, and please feel free to reach out to me if you need help or support with anything. Best of luck, everyone. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful week. Thanks for watching this video. Be sure to like, comment and subscribe. We'll be uploading new podcasts every week where we spotlight some of the world's leading startup founders and VCs to talk about their journeys and experiences in the field. Welcome to The Adventure Brief, a podcast designed to give you insight into the startup ecosystem. It is brought to you by Adventure, the UK's first student-led venture builder and accelerator, bringing universities' most talented people and ideas together. On this podcast, we speak with established founders, VCs, and Adventure's most successful participants to hear about their journeys and experiences. To find out more about Adventure, visit our website at adventure.vc.